1: Hi, this is David Marquet, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series.
0: David, thank you very much for being on the series. It's it's a real honor and a privilege. And for those listening who do not know David, David is a retired U.S. Naval Commander of the USS Santa Fe, which was a nuclear submarine. He took it from being worst in the fleet to being best in the fleet. But uh, since his time in the Navy, he has made an even bigger impact, because although Santa Fe continues getting honours and awards even uh, after he's left, because of the legacy he's left, um, two, two excellent books. Firstly, Turn the Ship Around, which I love, and there's a workbook, another book that goes with that, and then Leadership is Language, which is a must-read for all the CEOs and the senior execs I'm with. And many who are in some of the top companies have loved having David as a speaker. He's been said, you know, whether it be Google or whatever else they said, he's the best speaker we've ever had. So it's, a, it's a, for me, David, a real honor to have a, a fellow serviceman. My father was a naval officer. So this means an awful lot. Welcome to the uh, series.
1: Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, well, great. Let's, so let's just um, begin. I, I'm very interested in what you're currently doing a little bit more about, you know, okay, we're in pandemic, so you can't get around as much. What are you currently doing? But, but some of the key points in your, in your life journey that got you to becoming the, the commander of the Santa Fe and turning around a a failing ship.
1: Yeah. Well, um, my life changed dramatically with the pandemic because I was a keynote speaker and I really enjoyed flying around and, See, meeting all these different people in different parts of the world. And I have to tell you that having been in India and East Asia and China, as well as throughout Europe, South America and, and the United States, people are more alike than, than there's this tendency to think. And I, I hear this excuse about, well, it's their, this culture or my culture. Usually people talk about someone else's culture well, their culture isn't very empowering. And as a hogwash in my mind. First of all, you're not in their culture, so stop talking about it. Uh, but but my, my overriding impression of humanity is we basically all want the same things to like a 99.9% uh, level. And then when the COVID hit, we had to shift everything to online. I have to tell you, it's, it's horrible. And anyone who's done a speech or a presentation online, you see zero people. Maybe you see your own picture. Maybe you see 25 people on the zoom screen, but they're small. You don't really get the engagement. And so I had to kind of learn how to try and, uh, come through the camera in a way that was irre- a that, that, that was irrelevant. Uh, But we've we've been able to do that. We've we've been very successful with our our Zoom things. One of the things that you see here is we don't use SlideShare because that makes the speaker disappear. We do everything with virtual backgrounds, which I think is a more engaging way to do it. And what we're doing now is focusing on developing partners around the world who are interested in developing intent-based leadership, We'll talk about what intent-based leadership is and the, the the effect that it's having, but the the phrase we use is global brand local delivery. and we want partner we have we have partners in the UK in Europe, in uh, New Zealand and around the world to deliver this stuff. anyway, that seems like a little
0: long long-winded before we actually talk about what it is. <laughs> no, but it's it, it's great to to hear that and um, perhaps would you would you just tell us in uh, in a, a bit of a nutshell what is intent based leadership and leader leader?
1: So so the idea comes from my experience as a submarine commander, and at the core of it, intent based leadership is about aligning control, our actual control, to what we're what we can control, and it's about creating environments. The, the role of the leader is to create an environment where people can think take ownership and make decisions. Now you may say, well, this sounds very similar to what I'm used to. It's not, most likely. What most people are used to are hierarchies where we are trying to control the people below us. We make decisions in in any structure where we make a decision for someone else. So intent-based leadership is about this idea of we're gonna create an environment where people have control over their work because we know when they have control over their work, they're healthier, they're happier, they're more engaged. You get more thinking out of them it's more, and it's more fun. And by the way, did I say healthier? Yeah, we live longer, we have better uh, our, our body weight, we have less toxins in our body and we carry less stress home. And the problem is in most organizations, leaders think of themselves as decision makers. Which means that you're getting somebody else to to do what you decided for them to do. So you're trying to control people. And oh, by the way, you're being controlled by your boss. And this, this mismatch of control, because you can't actually control other people, and being controlled doesn't feel good. And it's this mismatch of control which results in the horrendous stress and toxins that we see in the workplace, which... There was a study by Stanford University that said stress and toxic workplaces are the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Now, this is pre-COVID, so it's probably the sixth leading cause at this point. But that's a huge number of deaths caused by simply the wrong work, the wrong paradigm of how we organize humanity. And it comes from the industrial age where we have leaders and followers, thinkers and doers, management and workers. And the idea was these people made decisions and got these other people to do it. Now, what you want is to let the people doing the work have decision making rights over the work to the greatest degree possible. We call this pushing authority to where the information is. So instead of this traditional approach, which, oh, well, all the people in the periphery of the organization, the person writing the code, the person flying the airplane, the person doing the operation, the person meeting the salesman, meeting with the client, the front desk clerk who has the uh, person checking in the hotel right in front. Those people have to write reports or be subject to various monitoring programs which aggregate and feed the information to decision makers up here who then make decisions and it comes back down. This is, this is not going to allow you to win going forward. What you want to do is take the decision-making authority and push it out to the people who natively have the information. You get closer coupling between the people with the information and the authority to make decisions. So you get better decisions, you get ownership and you get greater thinking. The greatest paucity and in, in the, the most constrained resource in organizations now, the most underutilized resources is what's going on here. It's people's brains. It's not your supply chain or anything else like that. It's what is the, what is the, what is the proportion of the thinking that I'm getting in the organization out of everybody?
0: Fantastic. And I mean, you, you learnt a lot as a commander of a submarine. You studied for one submarine. You didn't get that one. They changed the plan. You took over another submarine. Um, and you, you had this this sort of moment you look back on, which was so key for the, the book and all that you teach. If you were thinking back to yourself as a young 18-year-old naval officer, knowing what you know now, what bit of wisdom would you give to your younger self, which others who are young and starting out could go, that's a really good bit of wisdom.
1: Uh, Well, I, I kind of, I think of my journey in three basic steps. Number one, it's me as an individual contributor. I need to study. I need to know my craft. I need to do what I need to, what I'm told, Maybe, but what I need to do to support the organization is about my individual performance. Then I graduate and now I have a team. And now I think of myself as, okay, I'm the decision maker for the team. So I'm extending my, what I'm doing to the team. But, but the final step is, and, and, and this can happen when you're at the top of the organization and to a lesser degree when you're in the middle, but, I am now the architect of a decision-making factory. So in other words, my focus is not solely on making the product that we're making, but it's on enabling the decisions, enabling the team to make the decisions that will support the product that we're making. And in that role, the only decisions I wanna make are how to design and construct that factory, the decision-making factory not the widget making factory. And so this means like, how do we run the meetings? How do we interact? What are the, what are the normative forms of communication? How do we ask questions uh, as, as a norm? How do I express vulnerability? How much vulnerability? How do we talk about uncertainty and ambiguity as opposed to certainty and the arrogance of thinking, oh, we know the answer. And when you design that system and it means the policies and decision making architecture but it for us it really is about the language that you use and and our my hypothesis is that we're all using what's fundamentally an industrial age language because language is changes over generations but work is changing more rapidly so So work now is changing faster than the language has changed. Over the past 10,000 years, work changed slowly and language was basically able to keep up. But now there's been this decoupling between the speed of change of work, which is now emphasizing thinking much more rapidly, much more dramatically. But the language is still emphasizing doing. And it's this mismatch that's causing the stress that we feel in the workplace.
0: Yeah. And I love that in leadership as language. Um, And with a daughter who did linguistics at Cambridge, we've lots of discussions and the other daughter did English at Bristol University about the words, words create worlds. And another interesting aspect that you touch on in your books, which I find profound, is around trust, psychological safety, um, integrity, and the, the values you live by. And I'm just interested from your own point of view, you know, what have been your key values, which have informed the work you do, but also looking back when you were an officer, um, what happened when your values slipped and how did you recover? What did you learn from that?
1: Yeah, so I think I, I grew up during the Cold War in the United States, and I was this bookish, geekish math team chess club uh, kind of person. But I I really in my core felt passionately about the values of Western civilization, so to speak, as opposed to the communist USSR approach where people could choose their own religion, they could choose their own spouse, they could choose their own profession, they could choose where to live, and they would feel secure in their lives. And, and so for me, uh, because of that, and I made a decision to go in the military because of my sort of very introverted nature, submarines appealed to me because the submarines sort of hides from the rest of the world and it kind of fit. And as, as submarines are at the, we're, very, were very sort of bookish, geekish kind of people. And, but I still felt a lot like an outsider uh, for, for my for the bulk of my career. I felt like I was a person who didn't really understand that you're supposed to just do what you're told not ask too many questions. I always had a lot of stuff going on in my my head. And I was like, well, why are we doing it that way? I raised my hand. Why are we doing it? Like, I have an idea. And, and I was the annoying person. And I it was uncomfortable. I didn't like being told what to do, especially when I thought what I was being told what to do was 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 not optimal. And so I gained an appreciation for this for the value of different th- thinking. And whenever people would come to me with different ideas, even if I I, I think they're not that. Good on the surface, I would always try and be curious about it. I'll give you an example right now. The COVID vaccines are rolling out. Uh, Pfizer is approved, Moderna is going to be approved. They're starting to give shots in the United States. And I-, I think you should get a vaccine. That's that, if you ask me right now, that's what I would say. We got a lot of people who, who are like, they're very skeptical of getting a vaccine. And 20 or 40 years ago, my, my thinking might be, well, those people are wrong What do they don't understand, blah, blah, blah. But now, I, if I had a chance to talk to one of them, I'd really be curious about what they're thinking. And the other thing is, I appreciate the fact that not everyone in humanity is going to get the vaccine. Because let's just say all humans got the vaccine and over the next thousand years, we have a thousand of these plagues. But it only takes one of those to have a bad vaccine and we wipe out humanity and then there's zero. So so the fact that that there's variability in the population that some people choose not are skeptical about the vaccine is adaptive survival from the level of the species. You don't want everyone to just line up and get the shot. So I appreciate. Now I'm gonna get the shot. But, but, but I'm trying to learn to appreciate these divergent opinions, even if I don't agree with them in the end. First, be curious about what do they see that I don't see. And then work, it's much less to me clear than this, because we're making decisions about the future, which is always unknowable. To, we would always, one of the fundamental things is to always talk in terms of probability. How sure are you? How safe is it? How likely is it to work? not will it work, is it safe, are you sure? But these are the things that i heard myself saying over and over again, it was unhelpful, so I had to re-script all that programming. Yeah. And and I think the programming comes from one, it's a shortcut, because I'm not really, because it takes time and it's so hard, blah, blah, blah. And number two, it's really embedded in coercion. It's, will it work? That's a coercion. um, are you sure, blah, 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 right, blah, 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 does that make sense? That's a coercion, because I'm trying to get this, not, you know, if I, I what I want to say is, blah, 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 explanation, blah, 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 how do you see it, or how is that wrong, or what didn't make sense, not, does that make sense? Yeah. But we find ourselves saying that over and over again.
0: And that leads very nicely into the other thing I was interested in, which is around meaning and purpose. And the reason why you do what you do, which comes back to intent and how you explain, guys, as the boss, as the commander, this is my intent. OK, uh, commander's intent. What's your intent? How are you going to achieve Look, Tell me. So so what's your view on sort of what gives people meaning, purpose in their jobs, in their work? I mean, you're, you're with businesses a lot of the time now, but but how, how important is meaning and purpose in people's lives?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. I, I mean, I think it changes based on your situation and based on, on, on your age, it certainly has for me. I think that, I mean, my passion comes from this fe- these feelings that I had, then seeing what happens when you let people make decisions. I mean, the story on the submarine is, I, we went from permission-based to intent-based, where instead of saying, I'd like permission to do something, And if I don't hear a yes, the answer is no. So the default is no. The absence of a response is no. We would say, state what you intend to do, justify it. And the absence of a response now is yes. Now, Now, that may seem like not a big deal, but it's huge. Because now I was leaning back. Before I was always like, make it happen, make it happen, make it happen. And my picture was, I only have a brake pedal. I'm not gonna make it happen. The team's gonna make it happen. I gotta create a space where they have so much initiative, energy and a bias for action that they're pushing into me. And it it happens by you leaning back. Step one is you lean back, not they take initiative, then you lean back, because you lean back, then they take initiative. So for me, I've seen and suffered through toxic leadership and it's had an effect on my health. And I don't want my kids to have to deal with that. I don't want any other human beings to have to deal with this. The tragedy is these are good people trying to do what they've been t- told to do, which is to control other human beings. Yeah. So the, tr- the, the, the it's not evil people. There, there are evil people, but they're very few. It's wide swaths of well-meaning people, but they've got the wrong program. They're trying, they're running the wrong program and whether it's, it, it, starts with parenting and then moves into the workplace or whatever it happens to be. We're hurting people, other people. We're also hurting ourselves. We think we're not, but we are. Yeah. And we have stress because we're trying to control all these people. We're running around, do this, do this, do this. I went around, did you do it? Did you do it? Oh, look, now I got to hold you accountable. You, if, if you feel like accountability is a thing you need, you're doing it wrong. Because when you've designed the organization right, People hold themselves You can't hold another human accountable. I, I fundamentally believe that. Like, how am I gonna hold, like I can only hold myself accountable for my own actions. I can suffer the consequences of my actions and there may be a system which results in that. But in terms of me feeling like I need to do more or better. Yeah, yeah. And the, that's, the greatest things from humanity. Hey, You you can write to be average and 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 tell people what to do. Sorry, I just this popped in my head. Yeah, the greatest things in humanity are never achieved because someone ordered people to do do something. You you look at the top sports people. You look at the top geniuses and like no one ordered Einstein (laughs) or Newton to dream up the (laughs) laws. laws of physics and fundamentally change the way we think about the universe. They didn't do that because they were ordered to. No, no,
0: I, I, think, I think it's, it's a, a really important point, this, that it's got to come from, from people. And I'm, I'm almost hearing, I read a lot of Stoic philosophy and Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, and this, the only thing you can control is the control of controllables, which is your thoughts and your actions. I can't control your thoughts and your, I can influence, but I can't control them. Exactly, and, 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 and so it's lovely, that really resonates deeply uh, with a lot of the, the wider reading and practical experience I've had uh, as an army officer myself uh, for 20 years. And um, the other thing you've talked a lot about, which is so salient, is health and well-being, or what we call health quotient, you know, your mental health and your physical health. And a lot of the CEOs and the teams that I'm speaking to and that have been on the series, Either some of them have had mental breakdowns or their mental health is not good or they haven't looked after their physical health. I'd mm-hmm. love you to just talk a bit more about health, uh, mental yeah. and physical and how important it is in this approach that you take as well.
1: Yeah, it is very important. I, um, so here's, you gotta take care of yourself. And the one thing I see, especially now with this COVID, you got to control your own day. A lot of what feels out there feels out of control. and So we have this natural stress response. But if you're going to control one thing, control your bedtime. So for example, for me, say, OK, 10.30 is my bedtime. 10 o'clock, all electronic devices are off. 8 o'clock, I'm done eating food. At and you don't need to go that far. Just pick a time. Just just go to turn the lights off. This is my lights off time. And yeah. control that. Because you don't, don't control your wake-up time. Control the bedtime. Because if you don't control the bedtime, you're not going to get to bed in time. You're not going to get the right amount of sleep. So it's always, it all starts with bedtime, not wake-up time. Yeah. And think- when you do that, and you do it, do it for 100 days, you send a signal to your body, you're in control of this piece. And you will feel in control. And when you wake up, you'll be more refreshed. And you have this more sort of relaxing, reserved, calm, quiet com- confidence. Calm, quiet confidence is contagious. Chaos and panic is contagious too. But it will be hard for you to put a finger on it. But when, when your team engages with you, you won't be flapping around like your arms and you won't be excitable and you won't be blowing up and you won't be asking pointed questions that you wish you hadn't. You'll just you'll you'll exude this conquest, and then they'll adopt that persona, and it'll cascade down. So my my one thing is as, we have a series. Uh, if you look on a YouTube channel called the Six R's for Coronavirus, but they, they actually could extend to life, but they they all, they all start with R. But they're ways of being and, and behaving during this time. But they're all about Controlling what I can control. And like I said, start with.
0: Start yeah. With fantastic. Bedtime. fantastic. Uh, and then that sort of leads me on to a thought about IQ versus EQ. And um, particularly the, uh, the US military, both Navy, uh, Army, Air Force, um, you know, get very bright people to uh, academies like West Point and things. Uh, as you say, you're quite bookish. And then they also want the EQ as well. And you're in a lot of top businesses where IQ was championed. But in our research, we found that IQ only counts for 6% of people's performance, whereas EQ counts for 30%. And mm-hmm. the 4% is the other aspects I'm talking about. But, but what's your, your view on IQ, EQ, and, and how you've helped people develop that, that rapport, listening skills, shutting up, as you say, not being the answer man? What's, that, what's What's been your experience of IQ versus EQ?
1: Yeah, I, I'm high IQ, low EQ person. That's my, that's my bin. And my high IQ actually, I think, fed my low EQ because I would see the problems before other people and I would see the solutions before other people. And I would just blurt it out. And I would say, no, oh, no, that's wrong. Look, do it this way. That's, how obvious is that? And it wasn't very... Uh, consider it so eq has been the thing i work on Uh, in triathlons we say train your weakness race your strength so swimming is my weakness cycling is my strength so in work in my workouts i have to focus on the swimming technique but in a race i'm going to pound it out on the bike (laughs) so everyone passes me on the swim i pass them on the bike they all pass me on the run but (laughs) In any event, so so for me, when when I really need to be in a performance mode, yeah, I'm going to kind of summon forth that really clever cleverness. But by the way, it's the I can tell it's deteriorating. My IQ, my ability to focus for long periods of time, for example, is deteriorating. I every once in a while, I I, I sense I'm for, I can forget a word now, which I would have never. I can forget I forget the person's name, which I would have not done so it deteriorates and that's part of life but i would kind of summon forth that and like rest on those crutches but the so so all my books started self self-help i mean this certainly this leadership is language was all self-help i would find myself saying things and i would say like nah that didn't have the right outcome Uh, i i I, that made it harder for people to tell me i was wrong when i wanted to make it easier for them but i would find that these are just things I would program say and and I started so I had this big list and so well what are the patterns in this big list I couldn't remember the whole list and that's where we end up with the structure of the book which is there's basically we do two things in life one's active doing one's reflective thinking and they record they use the brain in different ways and so they require different languages
0: yeah yeah I think it's brilliant and you've triggered a number of things one is I'm a fellow triathlete. I'm not ending like as good as you, I'm sure, but every, every year until the the pandemic, I was doing one from from when I was fifty, and I'm approaching sixty now. Um, and I, I love it. and I think you know almost this pandemic is like it's a triathlon in that each of the activities, the swim, we don't know how many times we're going to have to go around the boy. And then there's a transition. All right, it's transition now. And then you've got to adapt to getting on the bike, but you don't know how many times you're going to circuit on the bike and then the run of an indeterminate length. So I, I find that a very good analogy. Um, but, but the second one is this, this whole thing that you talked in your book about don't be the answer man. And time and again, I come across super bright uh, executives, often CEOs who go from A to Z and they just say, that's the answer. And, and no one's taken with them. And so right. they, they infantilize everybody else. They make them like children and they go, okay, what do we do now? What do we do now? And they come to the boss for the answer and they go away and do this. And they go away and do that. They've done that now, wouldn't they? And of course, as you said, 135 people and they weren't thinking, but then you made them all thinking and that little cartoon of greatness, which is so well sketched out where their little light bulbs come out and they're all thinking for themselves. And I so wish that for so many organizations because these bosses, they get the ego kick from being the answer man um, and the status that comes from ripping off the shirt and there's the Superman logo, but people aren't thinking for themselves. And so I think you've really you've really nailed something quite profound. And and the act of shutting up, not just in order to shut up, but to be curious where they're gonna go in their thinking before right. you interrupt and think for them, that is emotional intelligence.
1: That, that's, that's that's the key and I, I think um yeah look i, I i've done a hundred times. i did it a thousand times when we were getting ready uh, when I was in the pre-command school there was this sort of semi-famous story in the submarine force I conceived of this new way we were doing submarine on submarine combat which is sort of like the varsity level of varsity level combat where we were going against another u.s nuclear submarine who was, which was simulating a bad guy and typically you it, it's, 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 you don't hear the submarine until it's too late, but they don't hear you until it's too late. And it's sort of, it's sort of this messy knife fight and everyone gets cut. No one re- really. So anyway, I conceived this new approach, this new tactic, which um, was a little bit artificial, but it would work in the situation because I knew they were American. So I knew how they were going to react anyway. So it's all in my head. I know exactly what I want to do. I have this team around me, including other Uh, prospective commanding officers and i just sort of very briefly said look here's what we're gonna do and it's gonna work out like this the whole thing is played out in my head it plays out exactly like i imagined but the team is not with me they're like what no it's not really right and then i say no just push the button i actually at one point pushed the guy aside leaned over and pushed a button on his panel this is a big note we lived we killed them huge win i thought the instructor brought me aside. He chewed my butt. I was like, what, what, what is all this? And, and he gave me the, basically what, what you were saying. And this is before I took over on the Santa Fe. And it really, like, it just it sort of gives me anxiety just to now tell the story because I can picture myself yeah. getting my butt chewed by the instructor and, and how I went from feeling so accomplishable yeah. To, to such a lo- lousy. Oh,
0: yeah. I, I, I so David, I so relate to that. When I was an instructor at the military academy as a platoon commander, I thought just I had to be the hardest, nastiest bastard, driving them hard, firing the ones who couldn't make it. I was awful. I mean, just like it was it was terrible because I was trying to do it all myself rather than getting them to think for themselves. And and, and that leads me on nicely to, to resilience, which you know, you, you've, you've built it into the, the system of people thinking for themselves. Yeah, And, and the other lovely thing that I, I so enjoyed in your book was you made vulnerability that only the strong can be vulnerable. It's not about weakness, actually vulnerability is about strength. You admit you don't know. And we had General Sir Rupert Smith who commanded the, armored, the British Armored Division in the Gulf War. And he's a really great strategist. And he'd often be in meetings uh, in a conference, he'd come to the back of the room, and they go, general. What do you think? So, said, guys, it's not about what I think. It's what you think. So actually, I'm just—I'm not the expert here. You guys are. Tell me what you think. And and I just love that approach. How have you, found, you know, maybe a story of adversity where you you were you were vulnerable, but you learned from it. I mean, that's a lovely story. But anything else that you'd share, or maybe even stories from business that you've come across?
1: Yeah. Well, look, saying I don't know is super powerful. I think. I mean, I, did, I was doing an event in Singapore. as lady stood up and said, I cannot say I don't know. We'll lose too much face. And it's like, well, that's, that's your problem. That's, that's on you. That's, if you can't say I don't know, you can't learn. You can't learn. You're never getting any better than you are. And you're going to be passed. You're going to be out of business in three years. So uh, I, we, again, I like to give, I like to make it like a sport. So we give, a lot of times we give CEOs little activities to run. Say i saying I don't know is one that we end up giving a A lot of them. Uh, And and the key is, first of all, you got to say, I don't know, when you actually don't know. (laughs) So that's like level one performance. And there's an integrity there. But the second part is, say you don't know or you're not sure, even when you think you know the answer. Because if it involves the future, you're not never going to be 100% correct. And all estimates about the future, we never let people vote zero or 100. It's always 1 to 99. Because it's a probabilistic approach. I um, yeah, I had an experience when I was on the um, submarine where I said, "I don't know." Early and thinking like this was the scariest moment of my of my time. And then I looked around and it was like, there was this fog that just. Cleared like that, and now the air was just clear, and the masks all fell off, and the team started saying, "Like I don't know, but we'll look it up. I don't know. I'll check it out. I don't know. Let's run an experiment. I don't know. Let's re- refer to the manual." And that was so liberating uh, for me as, as well as the team, and I call it the "be the get better self." Like in the past, my "be good self," that persona that wanted to justify that that's attached to my ego that comes from ego defense this is "Oh, i'm a good person oh think well of me blah 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 would get in the way and crowd out the behaviors of being better and so i was as good as i was but my upper trajectory was relatively flat yeah. as opposed to wherever i start with a higher upward trajectory i'm going to end up higher yeah as an organization as an individual so
0: it's 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 brilliant that approach the, the be good Moving to get better, uh, and, and also um, being imperfect, and and in the approach that you have, how are you finding it helps? And this is probably my my final area I'm really interested in. How do you find it helps with virtual teams when they've got to? We're all working on Zoom, and they've got to make some key decisions about you know how they allocate resources or whatever it is. And the CEO is sitting there trying to make sense of a whole mass of information. What what two or three tips do you find works well in? in virtual meetings when decisions need to be made by an executive?
1: Okay, so the uh, the first thing is, if you're the most senior person in the meeting, you don't wanna be the decision maker. The reason is because if you make the decision, the probabilities of other people challenging the decision have just dropped by a factor of 10 you want someone else get someone the closest person who's appropriate for making the decision see if they can make the decision and you're now the decision evaluator because you you've decoupled the passion of the ego defense which instead of being it, it attaches to the decision and now i have to defend the decision as well as when, with my ego as opposed to Okay, well, you make the decision. I'll take a look at this passionately. Every time you make a decision, you just, you can do it. You just need to know you're not, you're now contaminated. You're no longer are, are, you can no longer evaluate the decision. And then the face of evidence that it's a bad decision, your brain will trip you up. It'll muster all these reasons why, no, we just got to try harder. We got to do it longer. Oh, it'll, it'll work out, blah, 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 until you bankrupt. So... That's the first thing. Uh, but Now, let's say you're the person who's actually making the decision and you have the group. I would ask, and we would do this on a submarine, and real. you do it on Zoom, but you say, hey, uh, 1 to 99, you can do a Zoom poll, or, or we, can, we use hands a lot, or we go 0 to 5. So I'd say, hey, okay, we got, we got to launch. We're, we're scheduled to launch the new product next fish week. to
0: 5, don't you? You go fish to 5.
1: Fish to 5, yeah. We're scheduled to launch a product next week. We're going to make a decision are we going to launch it the question i'm asking you is how ready are we for product launch now note this happens before the conversation we should vote and then discuss most people do the opposite and the result of discussion narrows the variability of thinking, it, it, it reduces variability because it's suppressing the ability for outlying people because of social pressure to say, no, I think see it differently. So we vote separately. Now, if in a safe place, we can just say, ready, hands. And on Zoom, everyone just pops their hands and take a quick screenshot. And then I look around and say, okay, I got a whole bunch of fours and fives. I say vote zero if you're dead set. Of, if, if you think we're not ready to launch, vote five if we're as, as ready as we're ever gonna be to launch. See a bunch of fours and fives. People are enthusiastic about launching, but then you see a couple. Then you see a two. What you want to do is investigate the two. You're looking for the outlier. The outliers are very valuable. All innovation comes from out, outlying opinions. It always is. It's always the outlying opinion and that's the innovation. Because if it weren't the if <laughs> if it weren't an outlying opinion, it wouldn't be an innovation. It'd be the thing that we're already doing. So. Now, not every outlying opinion is an innovation, but every innovation starts being an outlying opinion. So we look for the two, we say, oh, let's hear about that. Now, if the group is split, you got a lot of zeros and ones, you got a lot of fours and fives, then see, uh, look for the group that's smaller. Let's say you got 10 people voting, you got four on one side, six on the other, go for the four. Always let the minority speak before you let the majority speak. And one of the things that's cool about Zoom is all the boxes are the same size. If, if an industrial age, if the CEO of Volkswagen had designed Zoom, the previous guy I'm talking about, he would have designed it so that the boxes were proportional to your how much you were getting paid. So as a CEO, I got a really big box, and a really big voice, and I suck up all the oxygen out of the room because I have to feel good about myself. <laughs> and you, the... A little employee the engineer actually knows what's going on with diesel engines. You're gonna, you're gonna have a little tiny box well fortunately it's not the way it is everyone has the same size
0: box yeah that's, it's it's great we're almost we're almost at an end because you you have a hard stop and i i want to have a bit of a chat when we come off air if you just stay on, on online um but but really i suppose the final thing is um I'm, I'm thinking about legacy and a final tip and i mean your legacy is o- already you've made a profound in difference to me and I'm someone who pays things forward so I share it with others and so many organizations have said they've had you as a speaker or they've listened to stuff you've done so that you've already made a huge legacy but what what would you like your your legacy to be and what's your final top tip you'd leave us with before we go off air and you and I have a chat
1: my dream is that for the people and the leaders who believe in humanity that we create a world where people can use their brains. And what I see is algorithms and bots are eating that they're eating the doing work. So here's an industrial age factory. So, So in this factory, we see one person here, who's the foreman he doesn't have anything in front of him. maybe some papers. That's the thinker, these are the doers all these jobs are going away because I can if, if the job is can be described as a series of tasks then I can program that into a robot and it's going away all that's going to be left is thinking which I think humans like we, we love solving problems we love using our the thing that makes us human our brain we actually are very bad at this kind of work and so It's gonna create this place where humanity in the right environments, we can feel more human. We will be healthier and we'll be happier and we'll be more successful in our lives. And we'll have everything that we need, but it needs to come from redesigning the way we, the fundamental interaction in the workplace. And we gotta walk away from this dichotomy of, I'm the leader, you're the follower. Now, followership is a segue. It is embedded in this. The key is we don't follow individuals. It's like, oh, I'll follow you. We follow the principles of the organization, including the person at the top. So we all follow the principles, but we all lead ourselves in terms of how we live those principles. And so for me, I mean, obviously, we're never going to get there for a long, long time, but just not having work be so so terrible would be would be great. And I for me, there's a couple of things that you can do. We think about leadership like a sport, you, things you can practice. For me, it's about control. And so one of the things I do is I, I, I try and find something to give control over. When I go to a restaurant, I say, hey, w- waiter, server, can you pick for me? And they'll say, oh, sure. Well, I recommend the chicken. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'll know what it is when you put it in front of me. Don't, and don't play it safe. You know, I, you know what looks good in the kitchen. You know what people like. I might give them some constraints, like I don't need beef. But th- the decision is yours, and and so you can practice that, and you'll see. Oh, how does it feel? And you have to make it safe for the person to make that decision. And now with COVID, I, I say I go to somebody else. Hey, pick my next book for me to read. Mm. <laughs> and, and 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 again you're going to put constraints that's providing clarity but it's it's the practice of how does it feel and can i do it it's not don't talk about it. just practice it yeah and so that's a, that's the key thing i want to leave with people is practice giving up control and, and the key word there is practice not talk about it not think about it, not dream about. it but actually take something in your life whatever it is that you're like in, like what movie you're gonna watch or what are you gonna do on the weekend or who's driving the car or how you stack the dishwasher or whatever it happens to be and give up control to somebody else. And you'll find, I think, when you can then apply that at work, you'll, it's, you'll have less stress, you'll be able to think better, your team will be happier, you'll be healthier and the world will be a better place. <laughs>
0: We're off to the races, as you say, you're off to the races. David, thank you so much. Uh, Please stay online, but I I just really valued that. We could have talked for hours. And I know people who listen to this is gonna be going out to 50 countries uh, on 10 different platforms. It's gonna be on YouTube, it's gonna be on LinkedIn. People will really value this. So thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you on the series.